You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 109, The Rise of the Sausage Maker. Thanks for joining me. As always, before we get started, I would like to thank our Patreon supporters. Only a small minority of people who listen to the show contribute financially, but without your help, I wouldn't be able to keep this thing going. As you know, Patreon supporters also get access to special bonus material. Lately, we've been talking a lot about the recent Napoleon movie. If you've been curious to hear my thoughts on the subject, now would be a perfect time to sign up. Anyway, we left off last time with a discussion of Napoleon's new empire. Hopefully, you now have a better idea of what kinds of people around Europe were receptive to the new order. Ambitious, educated commoners, city and town dwellers, those who were skeptical of organized religion, or born into minority religious communities, and those who leaned to the left politically. And of course, you may also have a better idea of the types of people who tended to oppose the empire. Rural people, religious conservatives, in particular the Catholic clergy, and those with ties to the old regime. By this point in our story, the radical period of the French Revolution was more than a decade in the past, but its legacy was still dividing people along the same fault lines we discussed in our very early episodes. This was particularly true outside France, and in places where the old order was deeply entrenched. Despite the discontent stirred up by French military occupation and French-style political and social reform, after the Treaty of Tilsit, the whole continent seems to be coming into alignment. France and Russia were now allies and Emperor Alexander had agreed to join the continental system. Prussia was so badly weakened that it no longer really qualified as one of the great powers. The small states of Germany were all either under French occupation, ruled by pro-French puppet governments, or locked into unequal treaties that put them under French influence. In Italy, Sicily stood alone as the only remnant of the old order. Austria remained hostile to France, but after a decade of disastrous defeats, it was an open question when, or even if, the Habsburgs would be able to challenge Napoleon again. As always, Britain remained at war with France. However, there was no obvious place where the British might gain a foothold on the continent from which to directly oppose France with ground forces. Surveying the geopolitical scene, Napoleon must have liked what he saw. 
A different type of personality might have rested on his laurels, but that phrase was not in Napoleon's vocabulary. Before the ink was dry on the Treaty of Tilsit, Bonaparte's attention was shifting to new horizons, towards the west, towards Iberia. By this point in our story, France and Spain had been allies for almost a decade, but their relationship had been strained from the very beginning. The two countries were very different, ruled by very different groups of people with wildly divergent worldviews, united only by geopolitical necessity. The last time we talked at length about the Franco-Spanish alliance was during our episodes on the Trafalgar Campaign. You might remember the scenes of the French and Spanish sailors brawling on the docks of Cadiz in the weeks before the battle. Those fights didn't come out of nowhere. The differences between the two powers were so profound that they filtered all the way down to the level of the common sailors. Those brawls would prove to be an omen of things to come. Within a year of the Treaty of Tilsit, France would be engaged in a full-scale war on the Iberian Peninsula. In this episode, we'll take a closer look at Iberia on the eve of its confrontation with the Napoleonic Empire, and try to understand how Bonaparte came to embroil his country in yet another conflict, so soon after the previous one. Looking at a world map, you might assume there were a lot of commonalities between Iberia and France, but the two regions were separated by much more than the Pyrenees Mountains. For centuries, Spain and Portugal had been on a very different historical trajectory from France. That had led to all kinds of differences at every level of society, from the system of government and the economy, down to the social structure and culture, and even the attitudes of individual people. Some of these differences can be chalked up to basic fundamental differences in things like geography and demographics. Much of Iberia is rough country. There were a lot of places on the peninsula that were incapable of supporting large settlements. In land area, France and the Iberian Peninsula are almost exactly the same size, but in population, France was more than twice as big as Spain and Portugal combined. Much of Iberia was, compared to other places in Western Europe, poor, underdeveloped, underpopulated, and out of the way. The whole peninsula is crisscrossed with mountain ranges, rocky terrain, and even deserts. No surprise, in much of the region, there was little to no infrastructure, and the state was very weak, or even absent. Despite these superficial cultural and linguistic similarities with their French neighbors, Iberia was maybe more comparable to places like Corsica, southern Italy, or even Poland, places where the local conditions created huge obstacles to progress. Things people might have taken for granted in more prosperous and dynamic regions, like good roads or basic local government, were much rarer in Iberia. Setting aside the basic physical differences, Iberia also had a unique history compared to other regions of Western Europe. As many of you probably know, for most of the medieval period, Iberia was divided into small warring states, a zone of unceasing competition and combat. Much of the conflict was ethno-religious, with roughly half of these states ruled by Arab or Berber Muslims with their origins in North Africa and the other half ruled by local Iberian Christian dynasties. This is often framed as a perpetual war between two sides, but the reality is quite a bit more complicated. True, there was a lot of religious conflict between Christians and Muslims, 
but there was also plenty of warfare within the two religious groups. Fighting between Christians or between Muslims could be just as destructive as the wider religious conflict. There were even instances of Muslim and Christian factions forming alliances against common enemies. To make a very long story short, the Christian kingdoms of Castile, Aragon, and Portugal were able to consolidate their positions and emerge as the leading powers on the peninsula. However, the last Muslim-ruled enclave in Iberia didn't surrender until 1492, and there was residual religious unrest in southern Spain well into the 16th century. In the popular imagination, this period was remembered as a great crusade, the Reconquista, or Reconquest, the righteous Christians reclaiming their birthrights from the barbarous Moors. Perhaps unsurprisingly given this history, Catholicism became a central feature of both Spanish and Portuguese identity, even more so than in other Catholic countries. Particularly in Spain, transforming a patchwork of minor kingdoms and autonomous feudal holdings into something resembling a united realm was a daunting challenge. Every European state struggled with this in the Renaissance and early modern periods, but with the somewhat unique circumstances of the Reconquista, Almost all of Spain's rivals had a head start. Generations of Spanish rulers and policymakers had relied on that common Catholic identity to bridge the gap, and partnered with the Church to expand central power. As a result, Catholicism was deeply embedded in Spain, at basically every level of society, from the royal court, who tended to view the Church as an invaluable partner, all the way down to the poorest peasants who generally viewed themselves as Catholics first and anything else a distant second. Spain was perhaps the most Catholic country in the world. There was a good reason that one of the legal titles of the kings and queens of Spain was Most Catholic Majesty. Perhaps the ugliest and most notorious facet of this relationship between the Spanish crown and the Catholic Church was the Tribunal of the Holy Office of the Inquisition, or, as you might expect to hear it called, the Spanish Inquisition. By the Napoleonic era, the grisly heyday of the Inquisition was long past, but it did technically still exist, although by the 18th century its primary focus was censorship rather than rooting out heretics and unbelievers. Still, the very fact of its existence was viewed with horror in enlightened Europe. Among the types of Europeans who read Voltaire and Rousseau, attended salons, and saw themselves as progressives or radicals, Spain was seen as hopelessly backwards, an outpost of tyranny and superstition. Some of this was probably just snobbery or chauvinism, but there was a kernel of truth to this perception. The Spanish government and the church worked hard to keep Enlightenment ideas from infecting the population. But beyond that, Spain was simply not fertile ground for Enlightenment ideas. The country's bourgeoisie was small, weak, and isolated from one another. Great landowning nobles dominated the country, just as they had for generations. Catholicism had a near monopoly on intellectual life and so many of the most intelligent and curious young Spanish nobles simply joined the church rather than embarking on self-guided scholarly journeys that might have led them to Enlightenment ideas. To a casual outside observer, Spain probably seemed like a land that time forgot. Those who lived in the country and had some awareness of its politics knew better. 
18th century Spain had seen a lot of important changes, changes that would shape the coming war with France. In 1700, the old Spanish Habsburg dynasty died out, and was replaced with a branch of the Bourbon dynasty, the same family who had ruled France before the revolution. This new dynasty sought to transform the country, in particular its political system. Their program will probably be pretty familiar to you from our early episodes. The Spanish Bourbon were inspired by the absolutist regimes of other European powers, in particular that of their French cousins. It was the same mantra in almost every European court of this era. Centralize, professionalize, systematize, modernize. Out with feudalism, in with absolutism. Just like everywhere else, the results were a mixed bag. Some of these reforms took root, some failed, and some were only partially successful. Unfortunately for Spain, these reforming Bourbons were starting from a much less advantageous position than their French cousins. Old regime Spain was even more divided than old regime France had been. Its central government was weaker, its clergy and aristocracy were stronger. The reformers made some good progress, but the country continued to lag behind its rivals. And just like in every other European country, this absolutist reform process had involved stepping on some powerful toes. Many influential noblemen and clergymen were working hard to roll back the absolutist agenda wherever possible. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Whenever we talk about Spain and Portugal, it's important to remember that during this period in history, both countries were at the center of sprawling colonial empires. Between the two of them, Spain and Portugal ruled over a significant chunk of the entire world. With a few small exceptions in the north, the Iberian colonial powers controlled all of South America. Spain also ruled over Central America, all of modern Mexico, and most of the American Southwest, including the modern states of California and Texas. And, as you might remember from our episodes on the Haitian Revolution, many of the richest parts of the Caribbean were controlled by Spain as well, most notably Cuba. In Africa, none of the European powers had had much success pushing inland from the coast, but the Portuguese had an extensive network of trading posts, and the Spanish controlled a few enclaves as well. Both countries had holdings in Asia as well, Spain ruled over the Philippines, and the Portuguese had a whole string of outposts in India and the East Indies. The only continents without any Iberian colonies were Australia and Antarctica. You might have heard that old phrase, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Well, it was first said about Spain, not Britain. The Iberian colonial empire played a massively important role in the global economy, We've talked in many past episodes about the importance of the colonial trade. 
the importation of valuable luxury products like tobacco, spices, sugar, and coffee. This was one of the most lucrative and strategically important industries of the 18th and early 19th centuries. These products also played an important social role. Many Europeans had come to expect access to relatively cheap colonial goods, and they were not happy when war or politics made them unavailable. As it always does, the trade went both ways. Colonies could also be useful as captive markets for European goods. Given the power disparity between the colonizer and the colonized, you can probably guess who got the better end of the bargain. The most broadly significant aspect of Spanish colonialism was the discovery of huge deposits of precious metals in the New World. Calling them huge might actually be an understatement. According to some estimates, there was a period when the majority of all precious metal production in the entire world came from just two mines in Mexico and Peru. Spanish gold and silver transformed the global economy. In many ways, the whole story of the rise of global trade in the early modern period is simply the story of this sudden influx of cash and what the Europeans were able to do with it. Well into the 19th century, Spanish gold and silver coins played much the same role that the American dollar does today. Spanish currency was trusted and accepted by almost everyone. Even people with no connection to Spain and no interest in doing business with the Spanish were typically willing to accept payment in Spanish money. This was the lubrication that kept the machinery of global commerce humming. You might be asking yourself, how could Spain and Portugal have experienced stagnation and decline after building these vast commercial empires? Spain in particular was in control of a source of wealth so powerful that it transformed the entire global economy. Surely Iberia should have been in a position to dominate the world in the 17th and 18th centuries. Instead, Spain and Portugal lost ground, as other European powers became more powerful more quickly. So what went wrong? To put it as simply as possible, when it comes to gold and silver, who mines the metal is not as important as who ends up with it. The same goes for expensive colonial luxury goods. The opportunity to extract them can be lucrative, but these products gain value the further they are from the point of extraction. The people making the real money are usually closer to the end of the supply chain. When it comes to economics, countries are not like individuals. Depending on the conditions, great mineral or agricultural wealth can be more of a curse than a blessing. In the case of the Iberian powers, they found themselves in a vicious cycle. The governments of Spain and Portugal bore all the costs and burdens of administering their colonies, but the lion's share of the profits went to private individuals. That might have worked out well in the long run if those private individuals had reinvested the money in Spain or Portugal, but that's generally not what happened. The relatively unsophisticated Iberian economies could not absorb so much money. Imagine a heavy rain falling on poor soil. Some of it might be absorbed into the ground, where it might nourish the local plants and animals, but most simply washes away. A lot of that gold and silver, and a lot of the profits from all those valuable colonial goods, simply passed through Iberia on their way to London, or Paris, or Amsterdam, or Genoa, or even New York. The Uruguayan writer Eduardo Galeano summed up this state of affairs in a memorable phrase, quote, Spain owned the cow, but it was others who drank the milk, end quote. 
The rest of Western Europe was getting rich off of the Iberian colonies, but they certainly did not chip in to help Spain and Portugal administer them. And think for a moment about what it really meant to maintain these colonies. Imagine the wildly different local conditions in, say, rural New Mexico and the city of Manila in the Philippines. Any local challenges in both places were Spain's problem. Capable, ambitious young men who might have had important careers in Lisbon instead ended up administering some obscure colonial outpost in, say, the jungles of East Timor or the rugged desert of the Brazilian Sertão. By the late 18th century, Portugal was beginning to experience a problem that was, as far as I know, unique in the history of European colonialism. They were in danger of being surpassed by one of their own colonies, Brazil. The Portuguese government actually began to impose legal limits on emigration to Brazil to try to slow down population growth and keep the colony under control. Spain was bigger, and its empire was more fragmented, so it didn't have quite the same problem with any one of its colonies. However, as colonial societies developed, especially in the New World, the Spanish did begin to worry that some of their possessions might slip away from their authority. Both countries worked hard to assert control over their empires. This was in keeping with that modernizing, centralizing, absolutist ethos we've discussed in so many past episodes. This was often resented by the local colonists, who had gotten used to a degree of autonomy from Lisbon or Madrid. Spain was certainly aware of the British example. London had tried to increase central control over its unruly, autonomous North American colonies to absolutely disastrous results. But with the absolutist Bourbon in charge, this was the age of reform, and so Spain plowed ahead. The Creoles could grumble all they wanted, but as of yet, they had no opportunity or means to oppose the power of the central government. By the eve of the French Revolution, the period of absolutist reform in Spain was coming to a close. The modernizing liberal king, Charles III, died in 1788. He was succeeded by his eldest son, who was crowned King Charles IV. The new Charles had little interest in modernizing reforms. In fact, from what we can tell, he had little interest in being king at all. He quickly earned a cool-sounding nickname. El Casador, the hunter. This wasn't because he had a sharp eye or killer instinct, but because hunting was his singular focus, to the exclusion of all his official duties. By all accounts, his most Catholic majesty, King Charles IV, was a kind man with good intentions, but quite dim intellectually and absolutely allergic to anything that resembled work. Without the institution of the monarchy, it's impossible to imagine this type of person rising to lead an empire. In fact, it's hard to imagine him rising to any kind of authority over anything without the chance of birth. As is often the case with this type of weak, disengaged monarch, Charles came to be dominated by others, most notably his wife and distant cousin, Queen Maria Luisa, and, through her, a strange and remarkable character named Manuel Godoy. When I first started the show, there were certain characters from this era that I was very excited to introduce to you guys. Talleyrand, Paul Barra, Queen Marie Louise of Prussia, and Toussaint Louverture come immediately to mind. I think Manuel Godoy is the last of those personal favorite characters remaining to introduce. 
I've always thought Godoy's career provides an interesting contrast with Napoleon's. Like Bonaparte, he started life as a nobody, born at the bottom rung of the provincial nobility, in a poor, out-of-the-way region of the country, Corsica in Bonaparte's case, Extremadura in the arid southwest of Spain for Godoy. His family was better off than the average peasant family, but men like Godoy could not expect to rise very high. With luck and hard work, they might build good careers as military officers, clergymen, or in the civil administration, but would be unlikely to ever come close to real wealth or power. However, like Napoleon, Godoy was a man of great ambition, who did not accept his somewhat humble circumstances. And, like Napoleon, this ambition took him on a stunning, improbable rise, from anonymous junior army officer to domination over the entire country in only a few years. But this is where the similarities end. As you well know, Napoleon had relied on good luck and intrigue to reach the pinnacle of French politics, but he also had tremendous talents and by the time of his coup in 1799, he also had a truly remarkable record of achievement. None of this was true of Godoy. His primary, perhaps only, skills were being in the right place at the right time and engaging in palace intrigue. Godoy arrived at the court in Madrid as a teenager, having been accepted into the elite Royal Guard Regiment, the personal bodyguards of the king and queen. Within a few years, he caught the eye of the future Queen Maria Luisa, despite the fact that she was 16 years older and already married to the future King Charles IV, the two began a relationship. Generations of historians have puzzled over this romance between Godoy and Maria Luisa. Godoy was reasonably handsome, and he was capable of turning on the charm when required. But hardly anyone who met him was impressed by his other personal qualities, to put it gently. And yet, he quickly developed a powerful hold over the queen, which he would maintain for the rest of her life. Godoy was not faithful to her. In fact, he pursued affairs and mistresses quite openly. As we'll discuss in a few minutes, he was an absolute disaster on every level for the country, for her husband's regime, and for the royal family itself, an almost endless source of problems and embarrassments. But, no matter how many mistakes he made, Maria Luisa remained firmly under Godoy's spell. Perhaps even more surprisingly, this bond soon extended to Maria Luisa's husband. King Charles came to trust his wife's lover over all his other advisors. Godoy was ruthlessly ambitious. Once he had his hooks into the royal couple, he would exploit the situation to rise as far as he could as fast as he could. Godoy is sometimes described as totally without talent or ability, but he does seem to have been genuinely gifted in the art of palace intrigue. Then again, with the king and queen as his unshakable allies, he did have a bit of an unfair advantage. In any case, as soon as Charles's father died, and Charles and Maria Luisa were crowned king and queen, Godoy immediately set about marginalizing and destroying any potential rivals for power. Charles's early administration was still staffed with his father's men, mostly modernizing centrist reformers, just like the old king. Many of them came from the upper ranks of the aristocracy. These were solid people, well-educated, straight-laced, enlightened, and temperate. 
But armed with the favor of the new king, the brash young Godoy cut through them like a chainsaw through cardboard. These were veteran political operators with impeccable credentials and decades of experience, but Godoy used his power over the king and queen to make them all look like fools. One by one, Charles fired his father's old inner circle under Godoy's advice. Within four years of his accession to the throne, Charles named Manuel Godoy, the poor soldier from Extremadura, prime minister of the kingdom. Godoy was just 25 years old. Once he reached the summit of Spanish politics, Godoy set to work exploiting his office for all it was worth. He helped himself to money, property, and official honors and decorations. His family all got hooked up with advantageous marriages into powerful aristocratic families. Godoy himself was married off to the Countess of Chinchon, one of the granddaughters of King Philip V. Of course, his relationship with the Queen continued unabated. Godoy seems to have had a particular weakness for official titles. The more grandiose, the better. After a few years in power, he had an absolutely ludicrous collection, to the point where a whole paragraph was needed to properly address him in official documents. For instance, a 1795 treaty between Spain and the USA refers to Godoy as, quote, the most excellent Lord Don Manuel de Godoy y Alvarez de Faria, Rios Sanchez Zarzosa, Prince of Peace, Duke of Alcudia, Lord of Soto de Roma and of the State of Albala, Grandee of Spain of the First Class, Perpetual Regidor of the City of Santiago, Knight of the Illustrious Order of the Golden Fleece, and Great Cross of the Royal and Distinguished Spanish Order of Charles III, Commander of Valencia del Ventosa, Rivera, and Aquachal in that of Santiago, Knight of the Grand Cross of the Religious Order of St. John, Counselor of State, First Secretary and Despacho, Secretary to the Queen, Superintendent General of the Posts and Highways, Protector of the Royal Academy of the Noble Arts, and of the Royal Societies of Natural History, Botany, Chemistry, and Astronomy, Gentleman of the King's Chamber and Employment, Captain General of his Armies, Inspector and Major of the Royal Corps of Bodyguards, etc., etc., etc. End quote. In case you missed it in that exhausting list, one of Godoy's titles was Prince of Peace, which is also one of the most commonly used titles of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. For most of his time in office, this was Godoy's primary title, meaning this is how people were expected to address him in conversation and correspondence, with a title borrowed from the man most Spaniards believed was the Son of God. He was also the first person outside the royal family to be granted the title of prince in all of Spanish history. Even Napoleon must have rolled his eyes at this level of egomania. Still, bombast aside, it's hard to understate Godoy's power within the Spanish regime. By the mid-1790s, not only was he the head of government as prime minister, he also had been granted direct authority over the military and foreign policy there was no longer any significant function of the Spanish state that was outside Godoy's authority. He still had yet to celebrate his 30th birthday. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Spanish government was becoming more centralized and absolutist, just as the reforming Bourbon monarchs of the 18th century had hoped. But all the power was being concentrated in the hands of a selfish young officer from the provinces, not the monarch. King Charles didn't seem to mind. He was perfectly content spending his days hunting and ignoring his wife, while Godoy usurped his duties both as king and husband. Perhaps it all might have worked out for the best if Godoy had actually done a good job running the country, but unfortunately for Spain, his only really successful initiatives were those to give himself more titles, more money, and more power. The royal couple's faith in Godoy was absolutely unshakable, although God knows why. Essentially everyone else at the court had the opposite opinion of him. Godoy actually did attempt to continue the modernizing reforms of his predecessors, but this won him no friends among the liberal faction at court. They all remembered how he had stuck his knife into the backs of so many of their friends and associates during his rise to power. And it wasn't just hard feelings. These people were generally Spanish patriots who really believed in a strong, effective state that would never come to pass with a self-interested incompetent running every aspect of the government. And I imagine it must have stung to see their reform agenda associated with this odious figure. More conservative members of the court hated him too. Obviously, they were opposed to any centralizing, liberalizing reforms, but especially when those reforms were spearheaded by a brash upstart from an obscure family, not the type of person they believed should ever be allowed anywhere close to power. Perhaps some of them might have forgiven Godoy's humble origins if he was actually effective, but that was definitely not the case. And of course, whatever their political beliefs or factional allegiances, almost everyone who was anyone in Spain was disgusted by the more or less open adultery between the Queen and Godoy. And of course, they all worried about the potential consequences of having an inexperienced bungler in charge of every function of the government. The Spanish aristocracy had a nickname for Godoy, the Sausage Maker. This was a somewhat rude reference to his origins. Sausages were a specialty of his home region of Extremadura, and they were generally considered a low-class food, fit for a peasant's table, but not welcome at the more refined feasts of the nobility. That was how the Spanish aristocracy saw Godoy, as a rustic, unwelcome interloper, a vulgar rube. You might think regular people might have given Godoy a break. After all, the average Spaniard was not embarrassed to eat sausage. They didn't have that same snobbish aversion to people of humble origins. However, it seems average Spaniards hated Godoy just as much as the aristocracy. 
his reforms were not well executed, and so, no surprise, they were not popular. His personal life was so scandalous that even poor peasants and urban workers were gossiping about his relationship with the queen and his adventures with his various mistresses. In conservative Catholic Spain, this was often viewed with horror, not amusement. Godoy had also become the scapegoat for the country's foreign policy problems. As we've discussed in past episodes, the alliance with France was not popular. On an ideological level, many in Spain viewed revolutionary France as a dangerous radical state, and the aristocracy certainly had not forgotten that the revolutionaries had guillotined Louis XVI, cousin of their own king. And on a purely practical level, the alliance with France had meant war with Britain. The Royal Navy blockaded Spanish ports, and British forces launched attacks on Spanish colonies overseas. Generally speaking, the British were extremely effective at blockading Spanish trade and disrupting the connections between the colonies and the metropole. And, as we saw in our episodes on Trafalgar, the Spanish Navy had taken beating after beating. By this point in our story, a lot of average people were feeling the pain. That was true in almost every country involved in this war, but in Spain, this was compounded by the general antipathy towards their French allies and the feeling that Spain was not fighting for her national interests, but for Godoy's grasping ambition. This is not totally fair. Spain had little choice but to pick a side in this war, and with France right across the border threatening invasion, partnership with the revolutionaries had almost certainly been the less destructive option. Almost anyone would have done the same thing in Godoy's shoes. But given Godoy's track record of shameless self-aggrandizement at the expense of the national interest, it was probably inevitable that he took the blame. Loathed by his own people and the court where he served, you might think Godoy would have had no choice but to buddy up to Napoleon. He was short on friends, and if he had to pay a political price for his alliance with Bonaparte, he might as well reap the rewards too, right? But Godoy had a special talent for alienating people, even those whose circumstance made his natural allies. In late 1806, Godoy thought he saw an opportunity. Russia had finally gotten off the fence and taken a side, joining the coalition against France. With Russia, Britain, and Prussia aligned, Godoy believed the tide was about to turn against Napoleon, and he aimed to turn with it. If Godoy switched sides, he could finally be rid of this politically toxic alliance with France, and with a little finesse, Spain might even play a part in Bonaparte's downfall, strengthening the country's diplomatic position along with Godoy's personal political position. And so, the Prince of Peace released a proclamation to the country, quote, Spaniards in less risky circumstances than the present ones, loyal vassals have tried to help their sovereigns with gifts and resources, anticipated the necessity. We hope that in the same way that the glorious grandfathers of the present generation served the grandfather of our king with men and horses, now the grandsons of our soil will assist with regiments or companies of men skilled in the handling of the horse so that they will serve and defend their homeland as long as the present urgencies last, returning later full of glory and with better luck to rest among their family. Then each one will contest the laurels of victory, 
Each one will claim to owe to his arms the salvation of his family, that of his leader, and that of his relative or friend, and all will have reason to attribute to themselves the salvation of the fatherland. Come then, beloved compatriots, come to swear under the banners of the most beneficent of sovereigns. Come, and I will cover you with the mantle of gratitude, fulfilling what I offer you from now on if the god of victories grants us such a happy and lasting peace as we pray for. No, you will not be stopped by fear, nor by perfidy. Your chests do not harbor such vices, nor give place to clumsy seduction. Come then, and if things should come to the point of not linking arms with those of our enemies, you will not incur a note of suspicion, nor will you brand yourselves with a dictation unworthy of your loyalty and courage for having ignored my call. But, if my voice should fail to awaken your yearnings for glory, let it be to your immediate guardians or fathers of the people to whom I am addressing myself, who will make you understand what you owe to your obligations, to your honor, and to the sacred religion you profess. End quote. It is quite a bizarre statement, a call to war, but a very vague one, undertaken in a roundabout way. As you may have noticed, he stopped short of actually identifying the enemy as France or Napoleon. Godoy thought Bonaparte was on his way out, but apparently he was still afraid to confront him directly, even in print. Still, in the context of the new coalition, the meaning of the proclamation was not lost on anyone. As we know from past episodes, Godoy had totally misread the situation. The new coalition did represent certain doom, but for Prussia, not for France. Apparently, the news of Godoy's proclamation reached Napoleon on the very afternoon of the battles of Jena and Auerstedt. Bonaparte and the Grande Armée had rendered the threat totally hollow before they even knew it existed. The only practical effect of this proclamation was to totally destroy any remaining faith Napoleon had in his Spanish allies. As was his habit, Godoy had made another enemy. Apparently, Bonaparte was so enraged that he debated redeploying his forces to the Pyrenees for an immediate invasion of Spain, although with Benningsen's army looming in eastern Poland, this idea was quickly dismissed as impractical. When news of the Grande Armée's stunning victories over the Prussians reached Spain, Godoy desperately backtracked claiming the unnamed enemy in his proclamation was not the French, but the Moroccans, who were supposedly poised to invade Spain with British help. The idea that the weak, disorganized Moroccan state could mount an invasion of Europe was laughable. Napoleon accepted this explanation for the moment, but even Godoy must have known nobody could have believed it. This massive mistake put Spain in an even weaker diplomatic position. Napoleon could now hold the proclamation over Godoy's head to demand even more concessions from his Spanish allies. Madrid would have little choice but to comply. As you might recall from past episodes, the commitment of Spanish ground forces had been a sticking point in Franco-Spanish relations for quite some time. Despite being allied with the French for about a decade, Spain had never sent any significant numbers of troops to fight in any of the wars that they had theoretically joined on the French side. In the aftermath of Godoy's proclamation, Napoleon renewed this demand, now framed as a test of loyalty. 
From Napoleon's perspective, he would come out on top however the Spanish responded. If they said no, he could plausibly claim they had abrogated their alliance, and thus he would be justified in invading and installing a more loyal and probably competent government. If they said yes, obviously it would help alleviate France's manpower shortage. But more importantly, thousands of the best Spanishers would be drawn away from their homeland, and placed under French command, weakening Spain and making them even more dependent on France. Loy said yes. He ordered the Spanish military to organize a 15,000-man formation known as the Division of the North. For service in Germany. Many of the best-trained and best-led soldiers in the Spanish army left for the North Sea coast. If Godoy ever got any more bright ideas about betraying Napoleon, he would have to do so with the cream of his military practically held hostage hundreds of miles away. It was a difficult price to pay, both for Godoy's personal political fortunes and for Spain's national interest but it succeeded in calming Napoleon's anger and salvaging the Franco-Spanish alliance. At least, so it seemed. Even as the Division of the North deployed to their new assignments in northwestern Germany, Napoleon was quietly building up forces in the Pyrenees for a future invasion of the Iberian Peninsula. Godoy's proclamation really had been the last straw. Napoleon was just waiting for the right opportunity to impose his will on his disloyal ally. This fiasco with the proclamation was certainly quite dramatic, but it was not the only thing pulling Napoleon's tension towards Iberia. French relations with Portugal were actually even worse than those with Spain. In fact, by this point in our story, the two countries were on the brink of war. We've mostly focused on Spain in this episode, but a lot of the same phenomena were present in Portugal. None of Portugal's problems were quite as flamboyant as Manuel Godoy, but just like their Spanish neighbors, the preceding centuries had seen Portugal relegated to the periphery of European affairs. Just like the Spanish, they were saddled with a sprawling, difficult-to-manage colonial empire. And, just like the Spanish, the wealth of those colonies often ended up in foreign hands. Portugal had a long history of good relations with Britain, stretching all the way back to the Middle Ages. The Anglo-Portuguese alliance is often referred to as the oldest alliance in the world, although I have seen people dispute that. However old this relationship was, by the dawn of the 19th century it was important to both countries. British and Portuguese commerce were intertwined, and their strategic interests were often aligned as well. For generations, this had been a fruitful relationship for both countries. The Treaty of Tilsit and Napoleon's continental system had suddenly made the old Anglo-Portuguese alliance one of the most important diplomatic relationships in Europe. With Russian ports now closed to British merchants, Portugal became the primary destination for British goods being smuggled into the French Empire. By late 1807, the docks of Lisbon and Porto were busier than they had ever been before. Bonaparte was not blind to this gaping hole in his continental system. Almost as soon as the ink was dry on the Treaty of Tilsit, he began putting pressure on the Portuguese to abandon their friendship with Britain and join the rest of Europe in the blockade. Portugal found itself in a very difficult position. 
If they caved to Napoleon and abandoned their centuries-old alliance to align themselves with his new order, the consequences for the Portuguese economy would almost certainly be dire. Worse, the British would be in a position to seize much of the Portuguese colonial empire for themselves. On the other hand, if they defied Bonaparte and stayed true to the British, France's alliance with Spain would make it very easy for them to invade. Little Portugal would stand no chance of resisting the rest of the continent, even with British help. Spain and Portugal had actually fought a brief war in 1801, the so-called War of the Oranges, and nothing about the performance of the Portuguese military in that conflict suggested they would be able to resist the much more powerful French army. The Portuguese had no good options, and so they tried to steer a middle course and avoid angering either power. As is sometimes the case in diplomacy, by trying to offend no one, they managed to offend everyone. Napoleon began to lose patience and resorted to naked threats of force. Quote, if Portugal does not do as I wish, the House of Braganza will not be reigning in two months. I will not tolerate an English ambassador in Europe. In two months' time, I will declare war on any power that receives one. I have 300,000 Russians at my disposal, and with that powerful ally, I can do anything. The English declare they will no longer respect neutrality on the sea. I will no longer recognize it on the land. End quote. This was the terrible logic of the two dueling blockades. There was no more room for neutrality in Europe. The minor powers had no choice but to take a side. The historian Peter Hicks has described the Treaty of Tilsit as a declaration of war on the lesser powers. I think that's an interesting way to put it. Once France and Russia were aligned, it was inevitable that Napoleon would begin to put pressure on any remaining holdouts to join the blockade and it was also inevitable that the British would be applying pressure in the opposite direction. Clemens von Metternich, the brilliant young Austrian ambassador in Paris, described Napoleon's mindset in a letter back to the foreign ministry in Vienna. Quote, Recently, Napoleon has changed completely as far as his actions are concerned. He seems to think that he has reached the point where moderation can only present him with useless complications. The Treaty of Tilsit and the extreme weakness of Alexander must have brought him to this point. End quote. Obviously, as the official representative of one of France's greatest rivals, Metternich was not the most charitable interpreter of Napoleon's actions. But Napoleon's own foreign minister, Champagny, echoed these sentiments to the Portuguese ambassador. Quote, Since Britain is mistress of the seas, the time has come when Napoleon wants to be dominator of the continent and all those who oppose him, all those who put up the least resistance, would be crushed, that in his agreement with Russia, he no longer fears anything. End quote. With Alexander by his side, Napoleon believed he had a viable path to victory, using threats, or if necessary, brute force, to bring the last few remaining European countries into the continental system, and then simply waiting for Britain to be strangled into surrender. And so, under threat of war, Bonaparte presented the Portuguese government with an ultimatum. He demanded they immediately cease all trade with Britain, and even that they sever diplomatic relations with London. The Portuguese actually accepted a few of Bonaparte's demands. 
They were still hoping they could steer that middle course between Paris and London, but neutrality was no longer an option. Napoleon began preparations for war in Iberia. This would be a politically delicate operation. Obviously, France and Portugal do not share a land border, so this invasion would have to be carried out across 500 kilometers, or about 330 miles, of Spanish territory. In theory, that should not have been a problem. After all, Spain and France were allies. But as you now know, that alliance was quite precarious, and papered over a lot of mutual hostility and resentment. Deploying thousands of troops across Spanish territory, much of it rough and with poor infrastructure, and then keeping them supplied and reinforced as they undertook operations in Portugal would be very difficult without the support of the Spanish government. Nothing in the preceding ten years of Franco-Spanish relations suggested Spain would undertake this with anything approaching enthusiasm. Fortunately for Napoleon, there was a pliant and self-interested man at the head of the Spanish government. If Godoy could be convinced that an invasion of Portugal was in his personal interest, he would have no problem dragging the rest of the country into collaboration with the plan. And so, in the fall of 1807, Bonaparte invited Godoy to secret talks at the Fontainebleau Palace. The sausage-maker was presented with a plan to partition Portugal into three parts, a small enclave in the north around the city of Porto, to be ruled by Duke Charles II of Parma, a grandson and close ally of the King of Spain, a large region in the center of the country, including the capital at Lisbon, to be under French occupation, pending a future peace settlement, and a new country to the south, the Principality of the Algarves to be ruled by Godoy himself. Obviously, this was a very attractive proposition to Godoy. For a man like him, there was no greater prize than a crown. Napoleon knew this well. Not so long ago, he had been in the same position. At this juncture, the sausage-maker might have been well advised to pause and ask himself, why Napoleon was offering to fulfill his greatest ambition only a year after he attempted to betray France. Did Napoleon seem like the kind of person who rewarded betrayal? Even a man of Godoy's limited intelligence must have been able to recognize that this was quite out of character. Common sense should have told Godoy not to trust Bonaparte. But, as always, he was too focused on his lust for power and desire for personal advancement. Napoleon had no intention of honoring this agreement. It was nothing but a bald-faced lie to secure Godoy's assistance in the short term and provide a plausible pretext for a bloodless French occupation of Spain. Bonaparte hoped that in the coming year, 1808, he would tie up all the remaining loose ends in Iberia and finally bring the peninsula into alignment with the rest of his new order. A more astute statesman than Godoy might have seen this coming, but it seems the sausage-maker was too dazzled by dreams of crowns and medals and money. On October 27, 1807, Manuel Godoy and Napoleon Bonaparte signed the Treaty of Fontainebleau, Spain was now formally committed to allow French troops onto her territory. The treaty was secret. Only a small circle of senior diplomats and political leaders were even aware it existed. But it would have profound implications for tens of millions of people in Western Europe and beyond. 
1808 would be one of the most dramatic and tragic years in the history of Iberia and in the Iberian colonies. With the benefit of hindsight, we can also say this was a watershed moment in the story of Napoleon's downfall. Next episode, we'll continue to explore the origins of the Peninsular War and take a look at some of the other geopolitical developments that occurred during this period. One last thing before I go, I would like to thank Cassandra in Peru for helping me with some of the translation for this episode. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast.